This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. I have been looking forward to today's conversation with a scholar whose work has been foundational for my and many others' efforts to grasp the challenging concept of meaning and movement. Can we talk about deep and shallow meanings? Where might we look for those meanings? And can sport be meaningful but unimportant at the same time? I'm honored to have Professor R. Scott Kretschmar as my guest today. Scott is a professor emeritus of exercise and sports science at Penn State University and one of the leading scholars in philosophy of sport. His work has explored various topics in relation to play, games, sport and physical education. And importantly for our podcast, one of his central topics has been the question of meaning and movement and how it might be found. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. It's such a pleasure for me to have this conversation today. Well, it's a pleasure for me to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And having followed your work for, for many years and listened to your talks, I think we really have to be selective in our topics. We could be talking the whole morning for you and afternoon for me. But so to get started, I picked something that I found personally relevant and, and very interesting, and this was the recent work where you defended the idea of sport being a mere hobby, as opposed to sport being essentially about pursuit of excellence. And I think this resonates to so many of us who are amateur athletes. And as you write in a quite funny way in, a, in your article, most of us never really achieve anything that remarkable in our sporting pursuits. And so, as you put it, Perhaps amateur sport or for amateur uh, sport participants, sport could be something that is meaningful, but at the same time, not important. Perhaps we can start uh, from here. I think that uh, there are many things we do that are, are very meaningful, uh, but uh, they would not make headlines in any newspaper or be recorded in any annals of history. Um, Things we do with our friendships, for example, our loved ones, are hugely meaningful, but they're very ordinary. Uh, we all need each other. We all need friends. Um, we all need close relationships. So when you look at the big picture of what might be called the good life, I think there are many things we do, maybe most of the things we do that are not remarkable, but they make our lives go well and we're thankful for them. And so um, I was a little concerned with some of the literature that comes from both philosophy and kinesiology, philosophy of sport, 
that focuses so much on the term excellence. And uh, as you know, in my article, I try to pin that down a little bit uh, as to what people mean by it. Do they mean relative excellence, like excellence for me? <laughs> or do they mean excellence in a more global, universal sense? And, and most of them uh, don't define it. They, they kind of leave it vague with the implication that they are talking about real excellence, that is high-level performance. And uh, that, that is even more bothersome uh, to me that when it goes in that direction, it becomes, I guess I would say, less democratic, uh, more exclusive. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's an irony for those of us in physical education and kinesiology, because I think most of us believe that movement experiences can be very meaningful and significant in our lives even if we stumble around a little bit and uh, we don't get everything right. So um, my article was really a kind of a protest against the excellence movement. Mm -hmm. Yes. You talk about this both as a philosophical question, but also as a cultural critique. And my own field is primarily sport and exercise psychology, and there almost seem to be only two justifications to do research. One is to get more people to be physically active in the exercise context, and the other one is kind of this high-level sport context. How do you support athletes' performance and well-being and so forth? But there seems so little research that is focused on the most of us for whom sport is important, but they will never make any kind of career out of it. So that's why I thought that what you're talking about is extremely important. And for us to think philosophically, what are the other justifications for doing sport than pursuit of excellence? For most of us, that kind of uh, objective excellence is clearly outside of the scope of what we can do. Yeah, it's, it's a difficult question. I think there are a number of answers to it. Um, the phrase that is gain currency in our literature is mutual quest for excellence. Um, Bob Simon, the late Bob Simon, one of my very good friends, a a dear man, uh, coined that phrase and it caught on as being kind of the, um, uh, I I guess, the best way of of stating our case and uh, trying to understand or unravel the mystery of the significance of sport. There are three terms there, mutual, quest, and then excellence. I love the first two terms. You know, mutuality is important because sport has been critiqued as being selfish and self-interested because only one of us can win and so forth and so on. And so I like the mutuality idea that when we get into contests with one another, we're both gratified. We both want to be there. We both can get something out of it. Uh, in a positive vein, even though one of us will win and one of us will lose on that given day. Um, I like the word quest because it, to me, speaks of passion, of caring. And I think our movement activities should be passionate and caring. And, you know, when I talked about mere hobby, of course, I put that in quotes because I was making fun of it. Um, Mere hobbies can be some of the most passionate (laughs) things that we do. Some of my friends are nuts because they spend way, way too much money on their hobbies. And so if I ask them, I say, you know, 
why are you spending thousands of dollars to, to hit a golf ball straight? Um, they'd kind of laugh at me and say, you know, what kind of question is that? Of course I do, because I care about hitting it straight. And the, the golfing season is going to come up here pretty soon. So the word quest is fine. So mutual quest. It's the third term, excellence, that bothers me. And so mm-hmm. I could fill it in with any number of other terms, uh, like mutual quest for achievement, uh, mutual quest for satisfaction, mutual quest for improvement. And that broadens the scope quite a, a bit. We're in a contest together. One of us is going to win or lose. We're passionate about doing well as we can in that contest um, and leave it at that, even though neither one of us approaches anything close to an objective standard of excellence. And so I think mm-hmm. one of our tricks in kinesiology and physical education is to, um, is to get more questing, get more passion in moving however we choose to move, whether it's on skis or in the water, I don't care, but um, however we find our playground. Right. And one of the scholars who you draw on in this paper in terms of critiquing this excellence idea on the cultural level was Tim Wu. And I also looked up this column where he's talking about how the pursuit of excellence has corrupted the world of leisure and saying that it's not enough to go jogging around the block, but now you at least have to run a marathon. And having been part of uh, distance running subcultures, I think now it's not enough to run even a marathon anymore, but so many people can do that. So perhaps now you need to move on to doing ultra marathons, you know? So in some sense, what he's also, what you are arguing that there seems... Maybe we shouldn't always, if sport is more, it's a hobby, it's something we choose to do in our free time, but we easily uh, kind of shift all of these things into these achievement projects. Mm-hmm. That Why don't we just do things for the sake of themselves? Because that's what we enjoy. <laughs> yeah, our, our culture, of course, pushes us, as you mentioned, toward higher, faster, stronger. And, uh, you know, we're seen as quote unquote failures (laughs) if we don't move up to the next level. But um, being stuck at a delightful level is no problem for me. (laughs) As long as you're finding delight and challenge and excitement and fellowship, uh, which I find in golf when I golf in the summer league, you know, moving up to the next level, getting into tournaments and, you know, so forth to have a trophy on my mantle. is just uh, something that um, would be okay, I suppose, but unnecessary. So one of the mm-hmm. big ironies is that, you know, we philosophers um, pride ourselves in being able to step back from culture <laughs> and to take an objective look because, you know, we're, we're not... Uh, influenced that much by culture because we we look for the truth um but we are affected by culture and that was part of my criticism in that article is that to my fellow philosophers don't you see uh we're shooting ourselves in the foot by mimicking one of the ills of our culture 
one of the excesses of our culture, and we're writing it into our uh, creed <laughs> as uh, professional mm-hmm. philosophers. Seek excellence if you want to be regarded as a legitimate sports person. And I think that's baloney. Uh, I think it's a, a sad um, offshoot of our contemporary culture. And, um, you know, <laughs> when I went to Penn State many years ago, one of my friends wrote me and said, oh, you must be in one of the great phys ed departments in the country, Kinesi departments, because Penn State has such great athletic teams. Well, what a joke. We have no relationship to the athletic program whatsoever. And we take pride in the mm-hmm. fact that we kinesiologists don't march to the drummer of big time sport in our country. And here we have mm-hmm. very smart sport philosophers marching to the drummer of big time sport <laughs> in our, in our mm-hmm. culture. And there's nothing wrong with excellence. I didn't want my article to come across as saying we shouldn't honor excellence. I think we should. I think that uh, Bob Simon was absolutely correct. He would talk about a culture is much less uh, lesser for it if we don't have great artists and great pianists and great athletes. And I agree. I think we're inspired by by those people. But it doesn't follow that I have to feel guilty <laughs> if I'm not on the same track as they are. Mm-hmm. Yes, But then on the other hand, you point out that we also have philosophers who have a view on hobbies as being something that can be valuable and worthwhile uh, for us as human beings to pursue without them being this kind of pursuit of excellence. And you mentioned two philosophers, James and Dewey. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about their views and how those views can perhaps enlighten us on the value of hobbies? Well, I love Dewey and James. They're two of my heroes, along with Merleau-Ponty and a couple of others. But um, Dewey and James are both down-to-earth philosophers. Um, And you know the word human comes from humus, meaning of the earth. And I think good philosophy is of the earth philosophy. And, uh, you know, both of them don't have the pretensions of Platonists or other idealistic philosophers of standing at some Archimedean point away from the messy wherewithal of our existence uh, being down here on earth. And so I like them in that sort of uh, general kind of sense. But one of the things that really inspired me was um, one of the things that James wrote when he was wrestling with the idea of what makes a life significant. And uh, He was toying with the idea of excellence and uh, so forth. And he noticed uh, when he was riding in a train, um, a peasant woman who was, uh, I think, carrying water on her head on a jug or something like that in another country. And it came to him as he watched her how uh, committed she was to what she was doing, that her place on this earth, her job on this earth was to do that and to be successful at it. And, you know, a philosopher like James, who's so famous, would look at it and say, you know, my goodness, you know, a peasant woman doing a menial task like that. But the thought came to him for her life in her worldview, that was a significant thing that she was doing. She was carrying that out, not just out of duty, but with interest and uh, with commitment. And so that really 
democratizes the idea of what we're about and that significance, meaning, passion comes in all shapes and forms. You don't have to be rich. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be genetically gifted. You can be a peasant, and I mean that in a metaphorical term, a peasant in terms of your motor skills, a peasant in terms of your social background and your status in society. And I picture the world as a wonderful place, as a a garden, a playground. And one of the, the saddest things is people can't find it. You know, they see the world as gray as no opportunities or as boring and it isn't or it shouldn't be and so that's part of the the reason i like uh people like dewey and and james they're humble philosophers who don't know it all uh, but they keep in touch with the common folk and real living with us earthy people Mm -hmm. yeah and one sentence or phrase that you pick from dewey was having an experience and so you argue that what is important is the quality of the relationship between you and your uh, your world and what and what you are pursuing if we think of sport as a hobby so it's about the relationship that you have with the activity and the world that opens up with it not the types of goals you pursue or the types of achievements that you might find and so this relationship means something that it lasts a long time, right? You don't develop a relationship over one day, but it's something that evolves and deepens as you as you go along. And I think this nicely takes us to what you often argue in relation to meaningful movement experiences, that it's not this or that, that we can pick these components, but it's much about the story that people have and the relationship that they've developed over a long time that might have some highs and lows. Yeah, one of my sine qua knowns, one of the essentials for physical education instructor, which I have been, I've taught a lot of sports skills, is a personal loving relationship with some activity. You know, it just it drives me crazy to think that we have professionals out there who have not experienced this personally or have met movement mostly as a duty or an obligation as opposed to a love affair. And uh, so I think that that would be something. If I were a, a principal hiring a physical education teacher, my main questions would be probing what kind of relationship that person has with movement activities. And if I felt it was more of a scientific, uh, mechanical, uh, this is good for you kind of person, I'd look for somebody else. And if somebody Mm -hmm. comes in and they've got fire in their eyes and they're talking about their skiing experience or whatever, uh, I say, yep, that's the kind of person I want in front of the kids. Uh, They know uh, what's there. So, yeah, I think one of the things that we underplay sometimes in physical education is the fact that it took us a while to grow into our playgrounds. We're there Mm -hmm. and we just think, well, gee, if I present volleyball to these kids, I I love that game. They're going to love it immediately. And of course they don't, or at least a lot of them don't. Uh, They can 
They can play at it, but they don't get in the, the front door of the kingdom, so to speak. You know, they don't really access the full magic that that activity has. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's partly a structural problem. And I've never been a high school physical education teacher, but I've watched them and I've, I, I know some of the constraints they have. And uh, that's one of the things that tests uh, our physical educators so much as to how to develop this relationship within the constraints that they have in the public schools too short a time, too little equipment, too many kids in a gym, you know, all the things that they often deal with around the world. Uh, But it can be done. And, you know, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about some of the techniques that can be used uh, to to do that. Yeah. I mean, one of the critiques that you've developed and I guess the starting point is that you don't find a lot of people who disagree that meaning is important. Right. This is kind of our starting point, that meaningful experiences are something to be sought for. And if we can somehow help people to find those experiences, that's that's a good goal for us that we share. But the problem is that our approaches and how we try to get there might not be effective in reaching the goal. And you've talked about three type of approaches, how how meaning is promoted in physical education, the prudential, affective, and intellectual approaches. And I guess this is something that also other people then draw upon afterwards. So maybe we need to do an overview of these three and what are the opportunities and problems with them? Well, the prudential <laughs> has lots of problems, uh, particularly with young children. You know, it's a partly age-related issue. You know, picture yourself talking to an eight-year-old. You know, you need to exercise and get high heart rates or you're going to die too young. Uh, You know, to an eight-year-old, are you kidding me? Uh, You know, we need to invite them into playgrounds and somebody can explain the physiology later. Uh, But the prudential approach um, is hugely seductive. You know, I've taught, I don't know, thousands of undergraduates over the years, and almost to a person, not to a person, but a lot of them think, boy, the science is so darn good now on why we need to move and get out of our chairs and so forth. If I explain that to my clients, say in a physical therapy setting or in a phys ed setting, they are going to march to that information. They'd be stupid not to. Well, the point is we're stupid. (laughs) We you know, when I was in graduate school, I read, read uh, you know, 12 books on irrational man. Uh, it should be irrational people, but it was irrational man back then. We're mm-hmm. irrational. We do what we love to do. I love Twinkies. I love to eat Twinkies. They're terrible for me, but I do it. And, and so that rational approach is not good for kids. It doesn't work uh, for a lot of people. It's been documented in the literature. It doesn't work for a lot of people. Recidivism is awful. You know, they'll work out for six months and then they quit and so forth. The affective approach is bad <laughs> because it's, it's so easy and it's so shallow. Like I say in some of my articles, if you're any kind of a decent phys ed teacher, you can make a class fun. If you can't do that, you should, you know, go into selling insurance or something else. But if you can't make a class period more or less fun, you know, do something else. But fun doesn't get to it. You know, lots of things are fun. 
And that doesn't mm-hmm. get to that kind of relationship you are pointing to there of lifelong love affair between me and golf or between me and jogging or between me and hiking or skiing, whatever the relationship is. Mm-hmm. So when I read this literature, um, from some of my colleagues saying, oh, yes, you have to make the activity fun. You know, I want to get sick to myself because that's that's so ineffective. And, you know, you can get, if you're a teacher trying to survive the period, it works. If you're a, tre- mm-hmm. a teacher trying to change a person's life, it doesn't work. And I think we should be pe- teachers trying to change people's lives. So then... Uh, <clears throat> The third one, the intellectual approach, is that yeah, what some of these things have been so long ago, I have to get them back up in memory. I guess the intellectual approach, and maybe I'm repeating, is is somewhat like the uh, prudential approach. Is that well, no. When I wrote that, it was uh, when there was a great deal of interest in intellectualizing fiscal education, and so we had a lot of books coming out where we replaced movement with reading. And uh, I really felt that public school physical education should be about moving. It should be about our activities, developing motor skills, and, uh, you know, as I call it, growing playgrounds. And so the sort of intellectual movement so that we could be better respected in the high schools and so forth. You know, we could partner with the uh, biology teacher and so we could do some intellectual stuff on exercise and physiology. And that's all well and good. But to me, that deflects us from our primary purpose, of uh, acquainting kids with the spatial, temporal, physical world and having good relationships mm-hmm. as people. I think most of them out there have two legs and two arms and two eyes and two ears. You know, <laughs> we're not getting rid of that. <laughs> So, yeah, the intellectual movement, I was just worried it it sort of died of its own um, failure. Uh, But back in the uh, probably in the 1970s and 80s, there was a pretty big movement to intellectualize fiscal education. Yeah, I've had several conversations with people about these approaches and what I find interesting and what we often discussed about is that in many other like we don't typically expect that mathematics or learning English is something that should be fun. Mm-hmm. And so whereas physical education, this dimension that it should be enjoyable and fun is so so dominant. Right. Well, I, I'm not a fun guy. I mean, I love joy and meaning, but I don't teach toward fun. And um, I think that one of the, the great skills of a physical education teacher is to get in the repetitions, get in the high heart rate, whatever it is you need to do given the lesson that you're teaching um, in a way that isn't overly painful or boring. And so you have to be clever Mm -hmm. about it. You can't just say for the next 20 minutes, we're going to do something boring. Uh, You have to dress it up a little bit, but you, the teacher, know you need the reps. (laughs) We don't gain we don't gain skill by magic. <laughs> we gain skill by some arduous practice and by getting in some repetitions and developing our, you know, motor synapses and so forth. So um, I picture teaching as um, 
being an apprentice, uh, an apprentice learning model. I'm the master. I know the playground. And I don't mean that in any puffed up kind of way. I mean, you know, I've taught a lot of skills where I wasn't really all that good at them. But I'm the leader and the students are the apprentices. And I say to the apprentices, I want to lead you someplace really cool. Uh, you're going to need to trust me because we're going to do some things that are a lot of fun and some things that aren't so much fun. But the objective is to be getting to that place that you're going to really enjoy someday and maybe do the rest of your life. And so I sort of take them by the hand as an apprentice, as the master teacher and say, follow me. And, um, you know, I think that's worked. Uh, I've told the story before with the table tennis thing. I would tell them on the first day, be careful. Uh, this can be habit forming. And, uh, you know, this is a dangerous thing, but I'm going to try to lead you someplace where you will not want to quit playing table tennis. You just want to stay at the table. So me, the uh, master teacher, my litmus test is getting the students to the point where they don't want to leave the table before the end of the semester. And um, with some successes and some failures, uh, that happened. And when I see them in that kind of relationship with a stupid ping pong ball and a stupid little table, um, I know that we've been successful together. Uh, we've built, built this quality relationship between a game and their lives. And then when they tell me, you know, they ordered an expensive table tennis paddle and, you know, equipment and so forth. And I say, yep, they're there. <laughs> they're true believers. And so it's hard. I was lucky because when I taught table tennis, which I did for a number of years, I had a whole semester, uh, three days a week. And so I had a lot of time to work on skill development uh, and so forth. So it's a, it, it's a challenge to develop that kind of relationship. And I think some of the other things for public school teachers who don't have the luxury of so much time, uh, to me, a, a requirement is to take advantage of um, recreational and other public things that are available in the community. In my textbook, I talk about a biking curriculum that uh, one of my colleagues in West Virginia developed, and he piggybacked on a lot of things that happen in the community because he didn't have enough time in the curriculum to do everything. And uh, so piggybacking on community activities with uh, mountain biking, in his case, allowed him to do it. And, you know, speaking of pain, he's my hero, too, because getting in shape to, you know, his culminating experience, achievement, not excellence, but achievement, was a long bike ride through the mountains. And these kids, you know, at the start of the semester said, my God, I forget how long it was, 12 miles or something like that. You know, I can't ride three blocks uh, without getting tired. And you want me to go through the mountains for 12 miles. I could picture some of his um, classes being unpleasant because he had to get them into shape. <laughs> but then when they could do it, you know, when they had different bodies, they had biked, biked bodies and they could do it. Wow. The joy on their face. and the uh, satisfaction in achieving something, even though the route there included some challenging experiences. I, I, think, I think challenging is one of the keys to successful playground growing. I would never tell a class at the start, this is going to be easy. I think that's, that's a killer. You know, this is going to be tough, mm -hmm. but it's going to be worth it.
you know, I think that's the better provocative kind of teaching cue that the teachers should use for their kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of lot of thoughts to digest and, and think further. I think we'll tap into this positive and negative experience a little bit more when we start with the second part. But now we can have a tiny break and uh, then we'll continue. So thanks for the conversation so far. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.